out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the writer Patrick O'Neill, who's just brought out a book called Anarchy at the Circle K, which is subtitled On the Road with Dead Kennedys, T-S-O-L, Flipper, Subhumans and Heroin. This book is available from all good bookshops and also available online. This is the interview with Patrick. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and also, um, yes, his early musical moments, I guess. But this is, uh, just to say, this is part of um, Punk Hostage Press, Hollywood, USA. So there you go, Patrick O'Neill, just to say, anarchy at, Sir, at the Circle K. Patrick, tell us about your early musical heroes or influences. Well, I'm a little older than you, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now 66. So I was born in '56, uh, and you know, it was it was it, everyone, when I was growing up, it was the Beatles and the Stones, and you know, th- there was that difference there, and I was the Stones, yes, and it w- went with that kind of music, and and really morphed into Jimi Hendrix, uh, uh, Johnny Winters, more guitar oriented, like uh, heavier kind of sound, uh, Alvin Lee, ten years after, I mean, that kind of stuff was like more of what I was into, and the, my the real moment I sort of got into music. Music was I went to see a Johnny Winters and concert and he had those things that were called the Walsh the Marshall Wall of Sounds. Right. This big huge just just marshals across the whole back of the uh Marshall Empires behind the whole back of the stage. And uh it was in a decent sized club in, in Boston. It wasn't a huge club by any means. And I lost my hearing for three days afterwards. And I thought that was so amazing. Because <laughs> I, all I could hear was this ringing that was so loud. And this, uh, Rick Derringer was in the band. And it was, it was, I mean, they, they, it was amazing. He played for two and a half hours. Like people don't do that anymore. And no. it was just, it was just insane. And so it's like sort of like, you know, we'll be into like a heavier sound at that point. And I started going with, you know, like, more uh less 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 hippie rock and more rock rock more rock yes well i i sort of had a brother who was seven years older than me he he introduced introduced me to the world of prog rock which was you know right. was um yes genesis wishbone ash barkley james harvest but he did also have black sabbath and deep purple sort of you know in there as well and when you sneak into your older brother's you know room to sort of listen to his records when he's forbid you they just seem like <laughs> otherworldly you know you heard fireball you heard burn you heard sabbath bloody sabbath you know paranoid yeah. it was just like my god this is quite something isn't it and then you saw them on top of the pops and it was quite rock and roll it was like okay this is not your you know normal top of the pops you know top 10 disco kind of <laughs> novelty songs that the 70s seemed to be so so much full of actually at that time but then yeah. did you have were your parents at all kind of musical or interesting there, there... They were not musical, but my dad was a is, is a linguist or was a linguist. He's he's passed away. Uh, he's a professor of languages, and he uh, he taught at Harvard and MIT in Boston. And uh, what what we we traveled all over the world. It's so like every year I'd move and be in a different country, a different city, a different place. Uh, you know, uh, but always someplace frozen and cold because he followed like 
uh, Norse languages and languages that had no known uh, written origin. And so right. I, lived in, I, I lived in Iceland and the Faroe Islands and Denmark and then uh, all over the states where you would go to different colleges to be a, a adjunct or in those days it was a, 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 a assistant professor. Uh, and then finally he landed a job at, uh, at, at, at Harvard and then he went to MIT. And uh, uh, they were into they were they were they were way into music, but it was it was more the folk music. He turned me on to Bob Dylan. He they listened to June and Johnny Cash and the Carter family. Uh, they liked a, a woman singer named Odetta, which I saw uh, way back when. Uh, Peter Paul and Mary, that kind of stuff. And uh, the only one I could really identify with was Dylan. Right. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, it was, and, 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 you know, but, but there was a lot of music in the house, a lot of music, they, they played a lot of music, it was, it was, but they were not musically inclined. Either yes. Though. Well, it was, it was interesting because Penelope Houston from the Avengers was saying that mm -hmm. her early musical moment was the incredible string band and pentangle, you know, English folk. And I was like, God, mm -hmm. okay, that's, I did not expect that at all. So right. yes, good old folk. I think that's crept into her solo work anyway. So there you go. But then mm -hmm. because in the book, which we'll get into in a bit, but you talked that you, did you say you were dyslexic in your young yeah yeah i'm just I, dyslexic I, I i i transpose numbers and words uh i transpose numbers verbally don't ever get a phone number from me because it'll be wrong and uh uh and, and then words look wrong you know and so thank god the reason i can be a writer these days is the beauty of computers and spell check and things like that you know and, and also I've, I've i've taught myself to work through dyslexia yeah uh, so it's it's it, it's it's uh it, it's not as bad as it used to be yeah. Because in the in that period, you know, the 60s and 70s, anybody with dyslexia hadn't been properly diagnosed and often were just kind of put in the class of kind of these are the kids who are a bit not going to, yeah. who are just a bit, yeah. you know, not, <laughs> yeah. not, not, not with right. it really. That's something about, I don't know what the word yeah, is. Yeah, I was... I was implied that I was dumb and I got, diagno I got diagnosed that uh, I had dyslexia when I was 30, you know, because it was that far. And I'd never really seen anybody about it since. I did really bad in school I, and I wasn't very interested in it. And uh, uh, it didn't really bring a bell to me. And I, I got more into art. I was I, I turned to an artist and an illustrator and, a com and drew comics. And that's what got me into the uh, the arts or the Art Institute in San Francisco where a lot of punk was happening. Yes. Blimey. San Francisco. This is this is exciting because you know obviously this was a happening scene. And in the in the sort of late sixties, early seventies, there was a lot of kind of performance artists at that time. So I'm thinking of band like the theatre company, the Coquettes, and people mm -hmm. like that. Did you did did they sort of come into your orbit at all? You know this kind of the wacky kind of world world of the late sixties and seventies performance artists. Uh, not really, but there was there was a lot of it ha happening at the Art Institute of local people, and uh, I, I didn't quite understand it. <laughs> no, it was sort of. It just seemed weird, and there was the clunky videos of it and things like that. It was very strange. Uh, you know, I I was I was worn to uh, bad student art films. I was I was a filmmaker, right? And, uh, and those were all pretty horrendous, but interesting, kind of kind of like unprofessional John Waters movies. And uh, uh, and then, you know, it was it was it was, but it was like a really heady time. There was a lot of art. There was a lot of stuff happening. You know, a lot of beautiful things coming out of San Francisco that was sort of leftovers from the hippie era, where you know, psychedelia and posters and and this sort of uh, a lot a lot of painting, a lot of painters were around, and and uh, it was it was you know it was I think just things I think things were just more art inclined at the end today. There was no computers. Nobody was yes. doing work on computers. Everybody's doing it by hand, and then it was sort of got be word of mouth to get things around. 
I know it's quite interesting, isn't it? That that kind of um, creativity has changed so much at that point. So as the seventies progressed, and we had that kind of wonderful, I guess you weren't quite. When when when? How old were you in 1970, 71? 71, Then then I would be what like like eleven, twelve, or something like right. that. Right. So you didn't have you that know? kind of. Oh my God, the seventies, the sixties are over, and all my heroes have, <laughs> have died, which was kind of a bit <laughs> drastic, wasn't it? Really. So um, I was just thinking for a lot of generation, they must have either thought, God, this party's gone bad, or they were just about to get that to that age, and you think. Oh right, that chapter is definitely closing quite rapidly, and suddenly a new wave of seven, uh, yeah, a new wave of bands was sort of happening. So I think for some yeah. bad people, it was a tricky period. So you, I Let's, guess it was it was seventy seven, seventy six when you were at that age where you were leaving school yeah. and suddenly punk rock hit. Right, right. I mean, I, I, when I showed up at the SF Gardens too, which was seventy five, uh, bands I first started hearing about punk rock bands and. Uh, so there was Ramones and the Sex Pistols and 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 things like that were coming out at that point, uh, or a couple of years later. And uh, but I I sort of uh, gotten off into this is so this is weird was just weird to admit I'd sort of gotten off into fusion jazz and reggae at that point and and some and some soul music and so I'd sort of gone that direction and uh, I, that's when I first started playing bass and I played bass in a horrible reggae band with a bunch of you know it was like just bad and uh, and uh, I got into that and and but I wasn't I wasn't you know I saw you know saw Bob Marley a bunch of times and did a, saw a bunch of other bands like that but I was just not I was just it was just it, it was it I just just was looking for something new yes. I was looking for something different than than the regular rock you know I think I saw uh god who was it just somebody who was just oh i i, I think I, I just saw uh i think oh i think it was i, I can't remember sorry i can't remember it was, it was a big english band and they they it was joe cocker it was joe cocker i saw, saw joe cocker and they and they it felt like they were going through the motions yeah it's like they were just up there going through the motions and i go this is not even spontaneous i bet you the guy did the same uh you know set list in every city you went to and he looked bored i was bored <laughs> the audience was bored you know and i really liked joe cocker and i was it's like wow this is really you know there just wasn't and plus it was in a huge arena there was like you know i don't know eight thousand ten thousand people there you know it was it was giant so it wasn't like there was any kind of you know you know play from this the stage to the audience it was just sort of like this thing you're watching you know i could have watched it on tv for all that mattered that yes was. well i think after 69 woodstock performance i suppose that was what he was trading off for the rest of his life really wasn't yeah. he and um yeah it was never gonna happen but i do love the idea i mean jazz fusion's a bit strange isn't it jazz fusion yeah you've got weather report but reggae yep. in the 80s i got really into people like sly and robbie and gregory isaacs and dennis brown and you know, all those King Tubby kind of people and, and Bob Marley. And they were just, you know, it was just Roots Reggae in the 80s was just fantastic. Yeah. And we had people like Aswad, Burning Spear, Misty and Roots. So it was just like mm -hmm. those gigs mm -hmm. would go on for two or three hours and you just oh, have yeah. the best time in your life. So, um, yeah. yes, the rhythm section of Sly and Robbie. So with your bass, did you, you know, because I know people like Jarl Wobble who went on to be part of Public Image Limited, he <laughs> started with that kind of sort of vibe didn't he were you did you enjoy playing the bass at that point in your life I really like playing the bass you know I, I didn't I didn't really understand I, I was I was you know self-taught I, I wasn't able to to you know I can't tell you the the the, the chords and number and you know what, what you know I wasn't I'm not a musician per se I don't read music and things like that so it, it especially with reggae it was, it was a real guttural kind of feeling it was a real you know you, you could you could play if you just got the notes down and I really liked it it, it was a real uh 
it was real. I guess what I'm going at is it was real rhythm. It was just yes. a sound and a rhythm, and it wasn't uh, technique. You know, it was of course there were there were technically good players, but it wasn't all about that. It was about just getting the bass out. Just you know, and 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 you know, it's really got a bass heavy mantra going on in a lot of a lot of reggae songs. You know, there's just that really repetitive uh, kind of uh, uh, thumping bass, and, and and I also like that because they were really they were really going for the bottom end. Then, I mean, like yes. that 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 bass in reggae really really holds it with the drums and it was pretty interesting you know? yes the bass the bass the the bass chakra is i think that's what they were going for you didn't have to be john Intwistle, did you really and that no amazing. no not at all you know you did have to sort of play no. some clever little lick up the fretboard and think right blimey how did you do that john i you know i'll, I'll put the bass down and pretend i never saw that so um yes right. it was good and also yes it's good to get stoned too let's face it so yeah. um <laughs> exactly so, so as the as the 70s progressed i mean sort of coming up to where you sort of start your book which is mm -hmm. i have to say an amazing sort of page turner i do love the bit with your um yes waking up in a young person's bedroom um <laughs> <laughs> fantastic i know i know because when we were growing up we used to hear people talking about uh you know like being interviewed in the 70s and 80s where they would say you know the musicians would often and say oh you know i got into the band because it was sex drugs and rock and roll and you never hear yeah. that phrase anymore do you i think someone said don't ever say that again please because i'm not sure i'm not <laughs> sure that was completely legal so um shall we just it, those words never happen do they so yeah so right. then so so the late 70s come you've left mm -hmm. school had you left college by then as well i i i let's see let's see what when i was when I, I got out of there in 79 is when i when i when i graduated uh from art school uh, and so uh, that's those right when that right in that, that area was right when I when I when I really went to you know I, I saw the Sex Pistols at Winterland, you know their last show I went I went down and 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 but be, but sorry let me back up before that a friend of mine said you got to come see this band. And I was like, okay, and I, and I went to the Babuhe Gardens, which was the big punk club in San Francisco, and went down. and And this is right after you know seeing all these other big bands. I think I think I'd just seen Judas Priest, and I was not that impressed by them. They were Cow Palace, and uh, uh, another big, huge venue in, in San Francisco. And I went to this club, holds. 300 400 people max you know and uh, they probably sell about twice or maybe 800 and uh went in there and there was a band up on stage they were canadian they're just called doa and they're, they're from vancouver and three guys up there were just going crazy they were playing you know three chord punk rock you know just churning it out the, the chuck biscuits who later went on to play with a bunch of other bands with the drummer and he literally was knocking his in between songs there was no between songs because he was already hitting his sticks to get the band going and they played for 45 minutes and it blew my mind it yes. absolutely blew my mind and then and the next the next couple, the couple nights was a, a few nights later uh the ramones played a uh uh, uh, the old Waldorf, which is another club in San Francisco. And I went down to see them at that point, you know, I had, I had long hair and uh, a couple of days later, I just cut it all off. And I was, that was it. I was, I was, was there. I was, I was totally yes. interested. Yeah. Yeah. So just, I God, just, there's two things there. Oh yeah. DOA. They, they did an album with Jello quite well, not recently, about 20 years ago, didn't they? I think they did one of those kind of albums with, with Jello, which was oh yeah, people like, I don't know. It featured the song That's Progress, I think, and we've got to get out, mm. of, out of this place, I think. But also, 70, 78, the Sex Pistols' last ever gig at Winter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was it Winterland yeah. or Winter? Yes. Winterland, Winterland. 
So the Avengers were supporting that night, weren't they? The, the Avengers and the Nuns played. That's the Nuns thought, as well. Yeah. That was kind of one of the reasons I went down, because they were local kids. You yes. Know? And, you know, I wasn't sure what to think about the sex pickles. They were, they were horrible. <laughs> <laughs> they really didn't care. Uh, you know, Sid Vicious couldn't play bass. Uh, you know, it was, but it was interesting. It was very interesting. Yes, Penelope yeah. said, I think it was their first or second ever gig. Well, no, it wasn't that. Yeah. They must have played a few gigs, but they hadn't got an album out at that stage or right, any material. Right. So that was quite something for them to play in front of 8,000 people who were. Right. Yes. Memorable <laughs> night, wasn't it? I suppose it was right. iconic. So did Sid then have his bass plugged in? Because she wasn't sure if, if Steve had just pulled the plug and said, look, I just can't. I, you know, the sound, well, so for one, Winterland was a horrible place to uh, hear music anyway, because it, it was an old skating rink. I mean, we used to do the ice capades there where they do they do like skating. So it's all cement, you know, and the noise just bouncing off of there and it's really horrible. And then the PA wasn't that great. I, I don't think Bill Graham really wanted to put any money to this. He just did it because it was a spectacle and he didn't like punk rock. So it was just sort of like sort of whatever. And it, the sound was horrible. And uh, I couldn't tell you what was going on there. You know, yes. uh, the guitar, the guitar was really loud, super loud and the drums were up, you know, so it was, it was, the mix was just bad. And, you know, it just it just was interesting yes. <laughs> to say the least i don't know if his bass would play it you know he looked great on stage he looked fantastic he looked like the like the punk messiah him and johnny running around was just amazing you know? oh that's right and i think yes from the story from penelope that he ended up od in that night and having to go to the hospital yeah. and get sorted out it's yeah. punk rock isn't it really so the, <laughs> good old sid <laughs> Basically, <laughs> after that long, really. But then coming up to eighty-two, this is where your book kicks off, isn't it? Really, where you yeah. you you're sort of driving on the highway one hundred and one with the Dead Kennedys. So, how did you? Yeah. You'd obviously met DOA or seen them. How did you meet the Dead Kennedys at this stage? Okay, well, well, my uh, I was going out. I was living with a woman who uh, whose ex boyfriend uh, was uh, the sound man at the Mabuhe Garden. And uh, we all became really good friends. He 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 lived in the same apartment, so we were all like roommates. And uh, he so he just sort of gave me a he through through him and a bunch of other people. I just sort of got into the Muhe Gardens every night, the club for free. And that was where things were happening. I, and I really went down there to hang out. I was really social. Didn't really matter what the band was playing. And you know, San Francisco those days there was a band playing every night. There was something happening every night. There was a ton of local punk bands and anybody coming through two or two there, like you know, Devo and Nina Hagen and, you know, Blondie. I mean, all these people played there, Jim Carroll band, like all these people played there. So there was always a band playing. And I went down there every night and drank and I got to know everybody. And uh, so I started working at the club and I started working stage and, and you know, which really just meant I got paid to drink mm -hmm. and hang out down there. And then I got to know uh, Microwave, who, which is the Dead Kennedys uh, uh, road manager. And uh, he he would hire me for local shows with the Kennedys, uh, but they were always going on tour. And then at one point, he just hired me to go on tour with them as a roadie. And that was and it. So that, yeah, yeah. And I, I'd seen them play a bunch of times and, you know, and, and, and everything. And it, it was, it was, see, it was right before hardcore started. And it was sort of before that, there was just like a bunch of strange bands around that were sort of under the banner of punk rock. You know, there was like a, a, a Silver Tone, which was later Chris Isaac. They played kind of a rockabilly. There was, there was no alternative. There was all these kind of bands that sort of had different sounds, but it wasn't this, that generic punk that sort of came out of a lot of punk rock. It was a lot lot going on, a lot of different ones. The Nuns, uh, uh, Magister Ludi. There was all these bands that were really, really interesting. The bands called the Offs that sort of played kind of a soul uh, uh, music. Uh, 
uh, and there's a bunch of bands that were really proficient in, in in music that they played there. The Black Athletes were a great band. It was really interesting, but but it wasn't. I mean, it was only punk rocks. They played punk rock clubs. You know what I mean? It was, <laughs> yes. it was just it was just, I, I you know it was hard. A lot of it was really hard to say what it was, but it was it was really interesting. I think that you know, like I said earlier about art and everything happening in San Francisco at that time was a really interesting level because it was sort of like, you know, let's put a band together and let's play, you know, and let's just get out there and do it and let's not worry about everything else. And it was, it, that was the amazing thing. It was just, it was just like all your friends had bands and everybody was playing down there. It was like one big party every night. It was cool. It's it's quite interesting. I think that one of the things I've noticed when doing so many interviews with English bands and American bands the American bands, there is because the place is so big and you're kind of probably isolated in the city, eventually somebody's going to move away and go somewhere else. And you then just have to get another member or you just have to mm-hmm. see who's left to form another band. Whereas in the UK, this is a bit of a sweeping statement, but mostly you just stick with those, you know, those one that one group of people. You go through that five year period, you know, you rehearse like crazy you get the single in our days you know john peel would give it a play he was the dj who loved new music you get a john peel session then you get the first album you sort of tour 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 second album you know you get the get you get the gist don't you you know things are starting to get a bit tricky the third album people just want to kill themselves and walk away and that's kind of the end of the band whereas in the in in america it is that thing of like people just going oh well he went to college or he had to go yeah he went and then we got another person in and that band folded and then we formed another band you're thinking Mm -hmm. how many bands have you all been in this is amazing (laughs) and and everyone sort of has day jobs because in the uk we had a lot of you know people had that safety net of unemployment benefits so Mm -hmm. you could just kind Mm -hmm. of sign on every you know fortnight you know go and be a punk rock be an indie yeah. kid you know it was fine in the 80s and there was other schemes that the government introduced to sort of get the numbers down so there was things like the job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance schemes which said look you know you can have a year just get the get the numbers of unemployed people down so it doesn't look so bad on our government records for the next election so it's kind of it's kind of interesting the way that american musicians just are a lot happier to sort of move cities and also just mm-hmm. move around the um yes yeah and different lineups really so yes i can see why why there's a lot more bands sometimes that happen but then did it was it becoming the the road manager or not road manager but the roadie for the dead kennedys did you just absolutely love that lifestyle yeah, I absolutely love the lifestyle. Sorry about the phone call. <laughs> yeah, uh, I absolutely love the lifestyle because, I mean, you know, what we haven't been talking about is I was a strung out junkie heroin addict. And so the, the best part was that I had no responsibilities. I was on the road. I was moving from city to city, you know, living in hotels. I mean, somebody else would clean up my mess, which is the story of my life during that period. Somebody else would always just clean up my mess. And it, <laughs> it was, you know, and it was also really, you know, it was kind of, you know, as, as you know, it, it, it was egotistical. I mean, it was, it, it boosted my ego. I, I, I was a roadie and then road manager of some of the bigger punk bands in America. It was my identity and was like really, uh, you know, it was, it was something that because like I, my bands, I had a couple of bands. My bands were never going to be that, you know, like just they're just they just weren't they just never were. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should have stayed at it or something like that. But it, but but this this gave me the opportunity to do to, to larger shows and huger audiences and be on the road with a band that was actually, you know, making a difference. And, and, and all of that was very exciting and very interesting. And, and you know, it was it was it was a it was, a, 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 you know, I, we all felt and I still feel that we were sort of making history and changing things. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because your previous book, which came out about seven years ago, which is Guns Need Need Gun Needle and Spoon, is kind of documents your sort of drug taking. When when did yep. you go from sort of like 
a happy bit of sort of hash to sort of hardcore drugs. <laughs> well, it was it was it was at the Art Institute, and and you know the Art Institute. I always say two things happened: was one was heroin, and the other was punk rock. And there was you know the 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 the, the at least in the circles I traveled in, uh, in in San Francisco, punk rock where there was was the 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 punk scene was really uh, uh, around a lot of drugs. And it, it, it was past the smoking pot and, you know, psychedelics. It went right straight to uh, methamphetamine and, and heroin and cocaine. And and so most everybody I knew was, was you know, indulging in, in quite heavy narcotics. And I, I got into it at, at art school and I got into, uh, you know, doing heroin as a casual user, if that can be said. Yes. And then by the, by the time I was uh, uh, work, working in the industry, I was a full-blown drug addict. Excellent. There you go. It's got to be done, hasn't it? Um, so I know in the east, on the east side, New York, it's it was kind of it was so cheap, and everyone just thought, yeah. "Well, this is this is great." So I didn't realize it was that easy on the west side as well. Well, yeah, because it was all coming up from Mexico. The Mexico right. that was, was pre cartels, but they they had a, a a drug called a black tar heroin that that was super cheap and and super plentiful and was flowing across the border. And it made a whole difference. Before that, when I first started dabbling in heroin, it, w- it was like Persian and white, China white, which was more expensive. And, and, and you know, things would happen where it would just dry up and there'd be no drugs in town, which was, you know, not great for a heroin addict. And uh, uh, so once Mexico figured out what they were doing, that it was just pro- prolific. It was everywhere. And it was very cheap and it became like the drug of choice. And the 80s were, before it turned to crack home, the 80s were a big heroin years, you know. It was yes. Bad. How did you sort of get through the syringe period and and not sort of pick up some horrendous illness at this stage? I I mean, I, 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 I had hepatitis C, uh, which was which was supposed to destroy my liver, but then you know, uh, oddly enough, because of some different you know getting so getting sober, getting clean off of drugs, and uh, stopped drinking, stopped smoking, stopped eating badly, and, and taking care of myself, my Hep C went away. So, Blimey. but I mean, you know, but I, 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 you know, I was, I was just very lucky, lucky not to get HIV, you know, uh, but, but, you know, Samsco was like a forerunner in uh, needle exchange, right? And they, they, they really did a whole lot of stuff with that, and, and, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, I credit that to, to my not really, uh, you know, catching all the worst diseases in the world, probably. I know because I know that in New, New Zealand, having spoke to quite a few people who were in punk bands during that period, I mean, they all sort of went down with horrendous illness. And yeah. there was a guy in the band called the the Puddle or Puddles, George Henderson. I mean, he talked about, mm-hmm. you know, all those kind of problems with liver and having to really sort mm-hmm. his diet out. Went to the library, and uh, really got into um, good good back, gut bacteria. That was it. So, you know, he kind of sorted that all problems and he's completely happy. And I think Martin Phillips from the Chills had the same issues as well mm-hmm. and going down yeah. with all those things. And you just have to sort of watch your diet. Well, not watch it, just change it quite drastically yeah. anyway. Yeah. Anyway, that's all good. <laughs> right, that's right. Well, you know, well, I'm, you know, I'm an annoying vegan. I, I, you know, I meditate. I don't drink. I don't smoke. You know, I, 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 I ride my mountain bike 15 miles a day. I mean, I'm like, I don't even know who I am anymore. You know, it's just sort of, it's just sort of, but, but that was sort of, you know, 
because you're kind of paying penance to all the stuff you did to your body before. It didn't exactly treat my body like the temple it was supposed no. to be. You know, it was you know, I kind of treated it badly. And uh, you know, I'm paying for it. I'm you know, I'm still paying for it. You know, you know the teeth are a problem, you know, the, the health isn't hundred percent, you know. But it's it's again, I was lucky. I was lucky. Yes, well, absolutely. And to be honest, you know, from England, you'll you'll notice that the English have terrible teeth because we are our dental, yeah. dental period. Well, you know, that's a sweeping I, statement, but um well. <laughs> I'm Irish. I'm Irish, so uh, I'm Irish, so my teeth aren't exactly <laughs> perfect know, either. We grew up looking at Donny Osmond, which was quite annoying, and then we sort of <laughs> noticed that Americans were also beautifully sort of like done, weren't they? So right. nothing missing there with Donny. But look, 84, big year, because so obviously you're mm-hmm. you're sort of the world of being a, a super a roadie for dead Kennedys is going well. Mm-hmm. And then you get a British, a really authentic British anarcho-punk band, the Subhumans, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Dick, Dick Lucas, the great yeah. Dick. Who, yeah. Um, yeah. So how did this gig come along? Well, uh, John Loder, who was there, who recorded them and worked with the Crass and and kind of managed them, except you anarcho-punks didn't like the word manage. And uh, uh, and so so he got, got in touch with the manager of Dead Candies and the band TSOL, which was Mike Rainey. And said, so I got a tour. Can you help me? They were they were they were like trying to do, I guess uh Brady was trying to get us over to to, to the England and, and 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 so they were trying to mutually talk about things. And Brady said, Yeah, I got somebody. And he called me up and said, You're gonna be a road manager, you're gonna take the subhumans on tour across America. And I was like, Okay, I was, I'm, I'm totally up for it. Cause it was like, you know, I want to go the next level and get get up from being just a lowly roadie. Plus, lowly roadies sort of get paid the night they work, not every yes. night they're out of the road. And road managers get paid every night and they get per diem. So uh, it was like, it was a better jump financially. And uh, subhumans flew over with uh, a guitar and a bass. And that was it. They had no other gear. I guess Trotsky had some drumsticks. And, uh, uh, and, and so part of my job was also getting gear borrowed from other the opening bands and 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 then we put and then we put together a tour and it was it was insane we we right. went out for went out for you know two one uh, a month and a half and i played like 30 shows it was crazy you know it was it was really grueling and another thing is neither of them none of them knew how to drive so <laughs> i did all the drive i did yeah, i did all so the driving i wouldn't allow <laughs> them driving personally but uh, no <laughs> that's amazing i mean that was that must have been a real kind of baptism of fire almost having a completely yeah. different band from a con- different country who was sort of you know and what were the what were they like what were the dear old english like in 84 were they okay or were they were they were they were amazing but they were really you know there was there were you know this sounds weird but they were kind of innocent you know unlike the jaded americans who were sort of out being drug addicts and none of them really talked about doing drugs they 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 drank a lot of beer uh they didn't really carouse a lot they uh they were all militant vegetarians and i wasn't in those days it was always kind of bizarre and uh and they 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 often accused me of pulling over the van in the middle of the night and sleeping because america couldn't be that goddamn big because we drive you know like it'd be like especially on the on the west coast you you know gigs were thousand miles away six six hundred miles away 800 miles away he's driving all night you know so i packed him up jump in the van go they're also horrified by american food because they couldn't get what they wanted they wanted veggie rolls and fry ups and those kind of things yes. and they couldn't they couldn't get it in america's just like you know mcdonald's and meat and, and and they were horrified and so 
we ate a lot of pizza. We ate a lot of pizza. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? you were carb loading, weren't you? That yeah. that yes, yeah. that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because that's the other thing. Because what I've noticed with a lot of British bands, and there's a five year narrative of a slightly yeah. mentioned. Um, like the second and third album there's a kind of lack of money they hate each other and the other thing that breaks British bands is they often would say oh we went to America and we came back and broke up and it was just like we Mm -hmm. just couldn't deal with it so there is this kind of vastness and I must admit there's been a couple of times when I thought oh shall I go to that gig oh it's an hour away and then I'd be talking to someone in America and I go oh yeah we drove nine hours to go and see the clash in this and he went I feel so rubbish now you know it's like (laughs) you would have driven all that way to see a band and we we would just be so I do think the English British are a little bit pampered at times on that front Mm -hmm. and also Mm -hmm. I mean Dick went to a, a public school and he probably had you know benefits and not yeah inherited benefits but we would have just got social security housing benefit council tax you know it's a mm. little bit of a you know you weren't really struggling too much really even if you pretended right. to you know you right. were going to be caught i mean nowadays they don't have those safety nets in this country so you mm. end up sleeping in a doorway and that would be the end uh, of you but in those days you would get 30 pound you know so you know unemployment and that would be fine but that's funny right. there was probably beer and cider they because they came from the west country didn't they uh yeah, yeah, was the... yeah, and, and they were horrified. There was no cider at, in those days. It was all beer and everything like that. They were, but, but you know, they... I had an interview with uh, uh, with, with Razor Cake. It's it's a it's a DIY uh, uh, a punk magazine out here in, in, in Los Angeles, and we talked about the subhumans. And, we're, and what really came down to is like those guys couldn't do anything else. I can't see. I can't see any of them working at 7-Eleven or, you know, at a corner store or something like that. Dick's not going to go out and, you know, be be, be a, 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 a hard carrier or a laborer or something like that. It's just not going to happen. It was really, really interesting. I'm like, some, I mean, some of the people in my bands, I can see them like, you know, I can see some of them being in commerce or being in, you know, trading stocks or something like that. But the, the, the subhumans were definitely, this, this is them. This is what they're going to do. This is their gig, you know. Yes, they'll be living in some little place. But in the book, there's a fantastic bit, which I just thought was so beautifully told, of you waking up in in a young woman's bedroom and and looking at posters. It was uh, Echo and the Bunnymen and Duran Duran posters. And you didn't have a clue, did you, where you were? No. Not even what city, not who who that person was. No, no. I was in it was in Kansas City and and uh we we were had a night off and we went down and the band from San Francisco called the Dicks was playing and we went down there I had a bunch of Valiums and I drank a bunch of beers and I met some young woman and then I woke up in a, in a bedroom and God knows where and I pushed the curtain back and we're out in the country there's like trees and stuff like that and I'm like totally freaked out and it turned out we went home to her parents house and like probably had sex and uh uh you know I, I can only assume that and then uh i woke up to had breakfast with her family which was just goddamn bizarre it was so weird and dad felt like an ex-cop or something like that mom was just sort of you know mom and it was just it was scary it was totally scary but uh, uh apparently uh I, I it was actually shawnee heights texas oh sorry shawnee heights uh uh missouri or, or kansas it was kansas and uh, uh i was trying to get back over to uh to 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 uh kansas city missouri and uh, uh we were like 30 miles away or something like that it was pretty crazy so it was it was weird but yeah Amazing. it was it was, a, it was yeah, it was weird. And, that, and then what th- there's another part of the book where she shows up again, because actually she showed up. There's other parts I didn't include in the book, but but she would then go on tour with other people in other bands. And I would run into her the whole time for years. And it was like sort of watching the, her 
digression into being a total uh, drug addict and punk rocker. It was pretty bizarre because she was kind of sprite and happy when I first met her. Not that I'm responsible for sending her. No, well, you you could you had you had very from from the description you had very little memory of who she was. Right, right. To sort of play catch up, which I just think is hilarious, especially when it's like, oh my god, we're in your parents' house. Yeah, right. And that's your dad, and now your mum, and now I'm sitting at the breakfast table, and that's your brother. I mean, right. that's that's a lot to catch up, isn't it, for your brain to process while feeling probably a bit hungover. Well, one thing that's really interesting, or at least to me it's interesting, is that's the first chapter I wrote, because that's one of the, one of the strongest memories I have on tour, Because probably because there's so much emotion attached to it. And, uh, you know, I sort of was playing around with things, and this book was a little hard to write because it, it was more uh it was you know it was like when drugs were working sort of and it was sort of this 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 thing I, that i was it, it, there was much more emotions involved i mean it might sound like weird because the other was drug addicts and bank robbery and things like that but this one was like you know when, when i was younger I, I was really it was really loved it it was a great thing and i wanted i tried to keep trying to convey that and so one of the first chapters i wrote was that chapter and and i i, I sent it out to a bunch of people trying to get some interest in the book from agents and publishers and uh they either they were horrified that, that <laughs> what i was doing and sleeping with a, a underage woman or they were like uh, they were like yeah i i guess i'd have to see the rest of the book but it, it was it's funny that you mentioned that cuz that's actually the first thing i wrote that would right. that actually started yes. the book you know the genesis Yes. And that's, you know, that's still one that sort of, I, I just, it's so beautifully told. And I just love that description. <laughs> I remember sort of reading, you know, people like Hunter S. Thompson's, you know, mm -hmm. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And there's that great thing of the road trip. And it's good when it's good, isn't it? And you're getting away with it. When yeah. does, as the decade progress, and obviously the more you keep doing the same thing and, and one spiral starts to go down, mm -hmm. when do you, when do the wheels start to slightly slip for you during that decade? Um, well, I mean, like I talk about in the book, uh, what, 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 what was about to be like, you know, 84 and 85, uh, I stopped being able to clean up because what I actually would do is I would kick dope before I went on tour with the idea I would stay clean the whole time I was on tour and of course find some drugs somewhere and get, get strung out again. But as, 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 as my drug habit, you know, uh, uh, progressed, uh, I, I was unable to do that. And so I'd go out on the road, which is just insane. You go out on the road with, with a certain amount of drugs, things that are going to last a long time, and then run out in, you know, you, you know, Chicago or run out in Texas or something like that. And like, you know, what do I do? And trying to figure that out. And so it, and things got just a little more, um, you know, the, can, the candies went from playing thousand seat halls to three thousand seat halls and then they're going to five thousand seat halls and then you know there would be three thousand people outside the hall because it wasn't big enough and it's, everything got ramped up a bit and it was so it, it, it stopped being uh sort of let's go on the road and, and screw around and see what happens it got you know let's go on the road we're making money we're doing this thing and we're we're we're, we're touring we're touring heavily and we toured non-stop for the whole the whole time I was with them, we we just we constantly toured. We, we, I was every, was, you know, three times a year we were out touring for like a month, yes. month and a half. You know, so it was a lot. It was a lot. And what was it like seeing the band that close and seeing the tensions as it sort of unfolded for you, sort of being around them? Well, I, you know, there, there, there was there was there was a lot of conflict and ideology going on uh, and Biafra is, is you know was truly punk rock politically correct this is what we need to do 
And he was sort of adamantly against uh, going to the next level, which would have been, you know, eventually arenas or whatever, how that was going to look like. And uh, he wanted to keep it because he had more control. Well, yes. the Kennedys, the Kennedys do something really, uh, really amazing was that they 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 had their fingers on the pulse of who was in that city, and they picked the opening bands, which usually is, is the, the 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 revenue the the, the promoter would do that. And uh, and they kept the ticket prices low, and they did all these sort of things because they, they, it was it was more about getting the music out there, and, and and you know, and we played a bunch of tiny towns like that would never expect the candies to show up, and we used to call them turd town tours, you know, because they were like these little, little crummy tours, and and we we play all the place, and you know, it was amazing because we'd be in the middle of Canada in some little city, and and three thousand kids would come out of the woodwork, you know, come see us, because at that point we were one of the biggest punk bands in America. And uh, and and Ray was was looked at it more uh, uh, economically or more as a, 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 a you know a, a living a career of money, and so they were buddy heads. And then there were certain camps of what was going on, uh, so it, that that was starting to unfold. And so what it used to be that they would like they would like travel together, and the crew would travel separately. They stopped traveling together. And part of my job was actually getting them separate plane tickets. And I mean, literally Ray and Biafra would not even be on the same plane anymore. You know, <laughs> it was that turn, turn into that kind of thing. And a lot of times yes. the, the part of the band would fly with us when we flew places, fly with the crew, especially when we went across country and things like that. That was all sort of there. And Biafra wasn't, you know, he was, he was separated. And, uh, it, it, you know, it just became, it, it became like, are you with Ray or are you with me? You know, right. and it, 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 I was I wasn't I was with, with anybody. I was running the show. That's what I'm doing, you know. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's just sort of well, I don't know. Lead singers are a total different animal than a lot of <laughs> other people. And they, they take a lot more attention, you know, and I, I think there's a little bit of jealousy there. And then you, and to get things you're talking about, which was like, you know, uh, you know, being in the same building all the time, truly together, dealing all this thing together. And then on top of it all, there's 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 royalties and songwriting rights and all these other things that people are making more money than other people. And then on top of it all, there, there's a huge amount of merchandise coming out and there's a split on that and how that works. Now that doesn't work. And it's just, it's just that there's so much involved and it really comes down to, you know, whose ideology you want to go with, you know? Yes. But, but I mean, a reality, we had to go to bigger venues. It, it wasn't it, like a typical was in Chicago. We, we were playing in a venue that holds 3000 people and there was 4000 kids outside and the riot happened, you know, because they couldn't get in. There's no way for them to get in. They didn't have tickets, but there was 4000 punk rock kids on the street in front of the front of the venue. And so, it, I mean, it just didn't make sense. Plus, it didn't make sense us not getting another 4000 kids into the audience. You know, if, yes. if it's there, you know, and and just saying I don't want to go bigger doesn't really, you know, do that, you know. And I, I we come to towns and there'd be clubs we had played at which were eight hundred seats, and then we'd be in a different club of three thousand, and you can't look back and say, oh, we should be playing at eight hundred seat club because that doesn't make any sense, you know. Yeah, you know, it's, so, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned lead singers because I did an interview with the guitarist Damien O'Neill from the Undertones and that Petrol Emotion, mm -hmm. and obviously. There was a lot of issues with Fergal, you know, and and the band yeah. and him sort of splitting, becoming a solo artist, and then sort of, <clears throat> you know, bringing the band back together more of a, <clears throat> a not not a novelty act, but you know, just reforming, saying let's just do it for fun, get a different lead singer, mm -hmm. and we'll just enjoy it. And then yes, he was talking about bands like you too, who mm -hmm. obviously sit there and think, 
we could have a really big thing here, couldn't we? And we could make mm -hmm. this work, but we'll have yeah. to sort of engage our brains and think of the big picture. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we could really miss this up. So there's not, there's not many bands who do the U2. And I know everyone has an opinion or dislikes U2 for being successful. But at the same time, anybody who's been in a band think, my God, they on one level, they're amazing, aren't they? They, yeah. you know, yeah. they just they kept it together when they could have obviously walked away and and all hated each other and ended up having to do, you know, crummy little jobs. Right. Well, I think also, you know, we were we started out where like people like Bill Graham and San Francisco and other big promoters wouldn't booking us. We, we were the, we were the troublesome black sheep of the, of the music family. And then be, it became a thing where we couldn't be denied. We were we were big bands, you know, we, we were we, and like, you know, and, and just the progression of the road crew, the road crew was in a van for a long time. And then all of a sudden we're in a, we're in a truck. We're, we're you know we're in a, you know, a huge truck full of full of merchandise and 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 gear. I mean, it just be it that's that was the progression, and, and so it's 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 just it's it's just how it works, you know. And you want it to work that way. You want your popularity to be there. You want to be a band that's going to play in front of people. And you know, I, I think a lot of people put put the sort of you know punk can't get that big, but I mean, you know, once once the once our our time was over, there's other bands like horrible bands like Green Day and and you know Blink <laughs> Blink 187 or whatever they are, some whatever it is, all those bands, they they proved it wrong. They went they went to be huge bands. You know, they were allowed to. You know, yes. and I know I think we paved the road for I know we paved the road for that, but but I think a lot of it was our limitations on ourselves that we couldn't see ourselves out of a club. And uh and that that's not that wasn't true, you know. Even if we we're just opening for another band, we 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 could have gotten we could have played arenas. Yes, it's it's kind of a quite a British mentality in a bizarre way, because normally that's what you know bands like the Clash did or the Sex Pistols. Yeah, I mean the Sex Pistols are a bit of a different thing, but you know, I, I love bands like the Smiths and and obviously they just couldn't contain that kind of creative energy and everything mm -hmm. gets so tense. But yeah, I don't know, it, it's surprising that an American band who's got a different you know, education, family, mm -hmm. different values kind of are so easy to implode. You know, you just look at the amount of bands from the UK, you know, who just kind of, you think, God, they just didn't have that conversation saying, yeah. should we just not blow this? Because actually this is quite a good <laughs> thing, isn't it? It's it's kind of weird. <laughs> so, because in the book, I mean, was it, because you, you've got this relationship with Annalisa, haven't you? Which mm -hmm. is quite, yeah. which is, is it, was it quite hard writing the book and bringing all these kind of memories and emotions back to you or is the writer is this kind of what you not enjoy but you know something that really pulls the narrative together well yeah I, I mean you know like with writing my first book you know, there's a lot of really hard memories to look at and then there are here too especially as the that digresses to getting to be harder and harder you know being on the road uh because of my own lifestyle and uh uh so th there's a lot of memories you pull up they're not all as funny as you know being in kansas and and, and waking up in a woman's bedroom and and it gets more and more difficult and the thing with writing is it's not like you just knock it off and then and then you that you're done with it you sort of stay with chapters for a week or so you're sort of in there you're digging around and you know like like i always kind of say with my first book you can't make yourself look good you know when you're not doing good yes. you know it, it, it's impossible so you really got to write the emotions and the vulnerability and, and you got to let people see you for who you are and and that that's difficult too you know and, and there's a lot of second guessing and there's a lot of you know you know should 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 i say that and there, you know there, there's things that you know there, there's a there's a scene in here that uh me and Chris, the sound man, we, we were gacked out on cocaine and we called in a bomb scare at, at one of the Kennedy shows to, because uh, uh, we didn't want to go work. 
you know, and I don't want the band to see that. That's that's horrible. Their crew just screwed them <laughs> over, you know, screwed over their show and boys, I know, you know, but but it, but it, it, it that that's that's what you have to you have to show that you have to show it, you know. Yes. There's 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 the beginning tour of, of the band TS Well I'm on a tour, and it was uh, it, it was I, you know, it was the first time I was working for a different band, and I got I got my ass kicked, I got stabbed, I got beat up, I got all these things happening on the first leg of the tour, my leather jacket stolen, all this stuff like that, you know, and I'd like not to say that, I'd like not to tell people that that happened. That no, oh, I'm this big heavy roadie, and I got this together, you know. But it, it you know, it's, it's it's learning by baptism. You sort of get into the fire and you do it, you know. And uh, so, so you know, th- th- those are hard. It's really hard to show that stuff, you know. To but but that's what makes good writing. Yes. That's what really makes good writing because you want to see that. You don't want to see somebody say, oh, "I'm this amazing guy and I did this." I'll just throw that book away. I don't care, even if he is an amazing guy. I'm not going to read that damn book, you know. And so it 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 makes just more. It just makes better reading to actually see someone vulnerable and see someone actually showing themselves for real. Yeah, because it's it's really the spiral down here, the the, the spiral going down where you go to hospital with Annalise and um, yeah. and that's quite it's quite graphic, isn't it? And quite sort of depressing the way you. Well, it's you know it's real, but it's it's yeah. quite beautifully told at the same time. I just wonder what it was like reliving all that kind of moment, realizing that things yeah. got to such a bad spiral, you know, at this point. Yeah. yeah. So what? Yes. So what was that well, like I'm, for you? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, the one thing, the one thing, one thing I remember is the time, the year. I mean, the time, the the the, the dates, is that. Punk rockers weren't in those cities, a lot of them, you know, like there wasn't like this huge punk contingent in in, in mid-Texas, you know, in, in college towns there was some. And uh uh and so it was we were looked at as, as looked like some strange people. And down south in, in in America, we were looked at northerners, we were Yankees, and so it, it was really bizarre. And and you know, it, it was it was ever since mistake take my girlfriend on the road, but taking my girlfriend on the road, if I didn't take her on the road, she got in trouble at home with drug dealers and stuff. And it was just more work for me to get back. And you know, it was it just it's it 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 was difficult to write about that and, and to, to 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 remember all that and how we were looked at. I mean, I write about how D H uh, the drummer was you know who is in a, the punk world is very white. And he's black, and you know him going through America and having to deal with that too. It's it just we felt alienated. We didn't feel like we were part of and. It, kind of that was part of the punk thing like i'm different than you i'm, I'm you know I, I got i got i'm more worldly i got my i got better ideas than you do or whatever the egotistical thing was but all of it, a lot of it was is, is just feeling like we really felt we, we really felt like we were part of the world we, we, were, we were a separate reality in a lot of ways yes and does it um because obviously the timing of the book is quite yeah amazing because because of what happened you know last week or two weeks ago with dh yeah. that must have yeah. that must have been really horrendous for you that blew my mind, you know. I, but uh, DH had been uh, hadn't been well, uh, he, but he had just gone on tour. Uh, he they just the Kennys just finished up tour in Europe, playing big huge shows all over Europe, and he got back. And uh, he, I, I'm sure he was drained. I'm sure he was tired. I'm sure he wasn't in good shape. And he uh, he fell down in the bathroom and hit his head on the sink, and it was blunt force trauma on the head. He, he passed away. And uh, uh, a friend of a friend. Uh, who was taking care of his dog came over to 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 see him and he knocked on the door and got no answer got the landlord to open the door and they found gh and it was just you know gh was a larger than life guy he was really a personality really amazing guy you know i've known him for 40 years yes I, I've, been, I've been hanging out with dh for 40 years and he lives in los angeles so i saw dh you know three times a week probably 
And uh, I just, I did, I didn't know what to feel at first. I just didn't know what to feel. I, I, I just, it, it, it just didn't feel real, you know. And there's a certain level when that happens when somebody dies, and you're not party to it or you're not there or something like that. You know, it, it's like, is that really real? And I keep expecting to see him, and and that sort of sunk in. And and you know, I found out through a friend of a friend, and I and I called him and said, "This real? I mean, how how?" How uh, uh, you know? Because you always hear someone, so you know, not always, but you hear rumors <laughs> of people dying and things yes. like that, and it's just it's always crap, you know. And I said, how how reliable is your source? And he goes, it's it's really reliable. I, I mean, I know this happened. I was like, oh my god. And then you know, social media blew up, and everybody's doing all this stuff, and I'm just like, oh boy, you know, it's pretty pretty rough. It's it's pretty rough. And it it's, is. But, but that's our age, you know. We're not young guys anymore, you know. We're we're getting we're getting up there, and and uh, you know the only the only solace I have in this whole thing is that DH got to play another tour. He yes. got to go out, do what he wanted to do, you know, love doing it, and and it just gotten home, and that and that's that 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 gives me you know hope, and you know I feel not that I'm happy that ever happened. I got no, but yeah, uh, you know, it just I think that just I just you know it, it makes it feel a little less you know rough. You know. I think they'd also got a tour of the UK lined up for next year from memory, but I'm yeah, thinking, I'm sure they do. Someone yeah. said they were doing it. What was it like when the Dead Kennedys, you know, break with Jello? What was that moment like for you? Because obviously you've well, been with them for such a long time. Yeah, well, I, I was I was removed by that time. I had gone off on my drug addiction and, and was in a bad place, and 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 you know, I'd worked for alternative tentacles for a while. I worked there for about a year and a half and I was doing, you know, all the, all the posters and, and album, album covers and things like that. And, uh, I, and then I, then I, then I just, then I, then I attempted to clean up my act and I went back to the East coast to stay with family and try and kick heroin. And so I sort of lost touch with everybody. And, uh, that's when my really good friend, Will Shatter from Flipper died and a bunch of other things were happening. And so I sort of just sort of stepped away from the music industry. Plus, I was pretty much unemployable at that point. I really couldn't go on tour. I was, had such a bad heroin habit. And uh, then I, when I came back out uh, years later uh, and I was I moved to L.A., uh, the, 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 all that stuff started with, with them. And uh, I didn't get involved. I don't, I don't want to get involved. Uh, I got, you know, a lot of people talked to me about it. And there are people in certain camps that felt this and that and felt it was very unpunk rock to get lawyers and whatever, you know. Uh, I, I, th I think everybody had a, everybody has a, a their side. And, and I think there's viable arguments. Uh, but I also, in the, in the end, I think the band should get paid, you know, whatever what that looks like, you know. And for, and for Ray, that, that, that sort of hit that, that rate, you know, raised another person. He, he doesn't have a job at you know, Safeway or the grocery store. You know, he, that's what he does. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I think all that happened. And so I, I just did, I just didn't become involved, but I was sort of sad that, that it really sort of, well, it, it wasn't good enough anyway. I mean, it wasn't good anyway. They, none of them were talking to each other anyway. So it was, it was sort of a bad shape, but it, it became us and, and Biafra or Biafra and, and them. And, and I, and I, th I think that that that's unfortunate because there will never be a reunion of the whole band again. Ever, no, you know, I saw Jello's kind of comment about the dead Kennedys, you know, after DH died. So yeah. It was like, um, yes, he, he sort of, I don't know how he feels. But then, so on the book, it's coming to, towards the back end where you've got to the bit, you know, If I Should Fall From Grace With God, mm -hmm. 1998. So just to mm -hmm. describe what, what's, what's, the, what's the situation with you just around this time, because this is when you go to jail. Yeah, this, this is, well, I, I had, uh, you know, gone 
all the way into you know the alternative underworld pretty much at that point uh, i like to say the only thing punk rock about me in those days was i had a leather jacket and uh you know i was uh i was shooting a, a huge amount of heroin i was really strung out i couldn't sell enough drugs or do whatever drug addicts do or petty crimes like that and i, I turned to armed robbery and, right, uh, which was, uh, it was a progression. It happened. Uh, it wasn't just like I'm going to be an armed robber. It was sort of like it got, you know, sort of went there, went there, and uh, I started, I started robbing banks, and I, I, I know, I, you know, I got away with it for a couple, of, you know, a year and a half, and then finally got nailed. And uh, you know, and I hadn't, I hadn't talked to anybody. I hadn't talked to anybody in bands. I hadn't talked to anybody in the music. I had really become, uh, you know, I I lived on a, on a four block radius. I never kind of really left it to, except to go do armed robberies and, you know, and score drugs. That, that that was it. My my world had become very very small. And I got arrested and I got charged with, uh, uh, you know, multiple counts of armed robbery in the state of California. They have what's called three strikes law, and they want to put you away for life for uh, three major offenses and they're trying to put me away for 25 to life, the rest of my life in prison. And so I was in a really bad way, but I was also in jail fighting that and a lawyer. And, you know, it just means you just constantly going to court and dealing with it. And uh, you get visitors in jail, things are happening. And yes. uh, I got called on a Saturday and it said, you know, you have a visitor. I'm like, who the hell is visiting me? And I went out there and it was Ray and Microwave, the old road manager, and Winston Smith, the, the dead candies artist. And they were on the other side of the glass and were sitting there. And, 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 you know, it just, it was, it was awesome to see them. It was amazing. It was beautiful to see them, but also just hit me how far away I'd gotten from who I was. You know, I just, I just, I just gone off the, the, the deep end into something else. And I was no longer that, that, that musician kid, the kid that was interested in art and you yes. know, music and doing things. I was just somebody that, you know, was a thug with a gun shooting dope. And that really hit me, but it, 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 it you know, it was, it was, it really, you know, it, it, there's two, two worlds colliding, you know, like, like really colliding hard. And, you know, and, and, you know, it was that kind of stuff that, that I made, I made the uh, decision that, that, that I was done. I was done. I'm not going, this, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to prison the rest of my life. That's not what, that would just be uh, the worst thing to happen to me in the world because prison's horrible. Yes. You know, so, so it's it just one of those things, you know, it's like, it was like, you know, a reminder of who you were and who you could be, you know, and I spent my whole life now, which is, which is now 22 years past that getting back to being that 17 year old kid that went to art school that's interested in music and art and, 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 you know, writing and all that stuff like that. And I, and I, and I, and that's, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to be now. But how did you avoid not spending the rest of your life in jail then? What was the process of that not happening? Because obviously you're thinking, right, that's it. Sorry. Right. I, 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 it's kind of a bit. Yes. So how does, how do you manage to sort of convince them this really is true? Okay. Okay. Well, California was 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 really gung ho, and the fact was that I had no other offenses. They were going to just three strike me at once, which is kind of not exactly right. And my lawyer got in there and really pulled a bunch of uh, you know motions and worked with them. And there was all these kind of deals on the table, like you know, like you know, two strikes and twenty years and this and that, and back and forth. And then I I sat in in county jail fighting the case for eighteen months. And uh, by the end of the 18 months, they, you know, like my lawyer said, you just got to wait till you're not the flavor of the month anymore. You got you know, somebody worse is going to come along that makes you look better and, and they're going to be all a gung ho on them. And, you know, the DA, the DA was, you know, could work with me. And so my my lawyer went back and forth. And basically what it came down to is uh, I was going to take two strikes and uh, and and four years, two years I'd already served and two years in state prison. 
And uh, and I and I heard that, and I and I was like, yeah, okay, because we've gone back and forth, you know, twelve years, five years, six, you know, all these things. And when I heard four years, and I talked to my lawyer, and he said, take the deal. And I was sitting in, in the back of the court, you know, in the bullpen, which is the holding cell outside the court. Mm. And the DA came in, came up to me, and he said, uh, "You, Mr. O'Neill, I'm so and so." And I'm like, "Yeah, whatever." And he's like. I think we found a cost-effective way to deal with people like you. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, you're the kind of drug addict that we're going to give you two strikes and you're going to go away for two years and you're going to come back out and you're such a bad drug addict, you're going to commit another another felony and we're going to put you away for life. And that, that's going to be easier and quicker than anything else we can do. And I was like, wow. And all I could think in my mind was I'm getting out. I'm, I have a date. I'm getting out of here. And but those words stuck with me for a long time. You know, it was, it was it, so so it, it was, a, you know, there, there's, California doesn't want to go to trial about anything because it costs so much money. So that they try and make some kind of deal. So that that was his logic. That was his logic that I was going to do. It. And, I, and I defied him. You know, I did. I didn't go back. Yes. My God. So you just spent two years and then defy. Yes, you, you cleaned yeah, up. Yeah. I spent I spent two years in, in county and then I spent 18 months in in, in prison and and got out on parole and was Fantastic. on parole for four for four or five years there so then how off. did you turn around your life because obviously it's like you don't want to yeah. go back but you've had the addiction you've had decades of kind of like yeah. mixing with probably people who aren't going to help too much so how do you then <laughs> how do you then sort that bit out there's a slight you know there's quite a lot there isn't there yeah yeah, well, I, I was in in county jail. There was a drug treatment program you could go to, and I went into that. It was crazy. It was you know, but it sort of started the thing. And what it did was I stopped using drugs in jail. I stopped doing everything. And by the time I got to prison, you know, I wasn't doing drugs. I, you know, and when I got there, like the, the, the gangs and people like that, they don't want really anything to do with you if, if they can't get something from you. You know, if you're not yeah. buying drugs, if you're not looking for sex, if you're not doing contraband, if you're not doing something like that. All I wanted was out of there. You know, that's all I wanted. I just want out of there. And so I had laid low. I, I got out of there. And when I got out, I went. I went to a rehab, and I, I just, I just said, you got to take me in. I got to come give me here because state of California sends you out. A prison with two hundred dollars. They give you two hundred dollars and say, "Go live your life." And I'm like, you know, I'm a drug addict. He just handed me two hundred dollars. I haven't, I haven't used drugs in almost two years. This is crazy. And I, and I knew I was in, a, I knew I was in a bad way. And I kept hearing that guy saying, "Cost-effective way to deal with people like you." I was like, "Oh man!" And I went to a, a drug treatment program and went in there. It was hardcore. It was behavior modification. They just yell at you, scream at you. And uh, I was in there for eighteen months. And they said, you can stay with us for the rest of your life and hang out here and be part of this structure, or you can get out on your own. And I said, I'm going out on my own. I got this. I'm all good. And I went out and some stuff happened in my life and I started shooting dope again. And I kept thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to go back. I'm going to, this, you know, this cop, this guy's going to bust me, you know, I'm going to prison. I was sort of watching myself do that. And at that point I put myself into like this bottom of the line, hardcore, you know, religious, even it was Salvation Army. Uh, drug rehab there was like a men's shelter and i put myself in there and i and and i i got it in there i i got it and i i started going to you know the aana and stuff and 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 cleaned up my act and that was 22 years ago wow you know, and, and so and and you know and it was you know it, it was it was it was it was it wasn't easy man <laughs> it wasn't easy but what's the alternative you know what's the alternative you know, and I started writing in uh, San Quentin. I was in San Quentin. I started, I was in a writer's group. I started writing county jail, but I started, and I started writing for Ernest in San Quentin. And that's why, that's why, that's why I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a writer. And I, I really got into it. And at, with about 
I don't know, about four years clean, I went back to uh, grad school, got my master's degree in uh, in creative writing and with the idea to teach college. And then uh, 10 years later, I, uh, I uh, with a pro bono lawyer, I went to the state of California and asked for my record to be expunged. And they said no. And they gave me a, a they gave me a, a, a certificate of rehabilitation, but that put my name on the governor's desk. And that was back when Jerry Brown was governor. He's a very liberal guy. And uh, the Christmas of uh, 2015, uh, his secretary called me up and said, we're giving you a governor's part. We're going to clear your name. And so they, they expunged my record. I mean, I, I, the governor of California, you know, gave me a clean slate. So, and because of my, because of my book, because of my writing, because of teaching college, because of being in the recovery community, you know, so it was, it was, uh, uh, it was you know, it's, it's a full circle. Mikey, yeah. that is an amazing story, isn't it? That is just, I mean, I can't, I have to say, when you said you started taking drugs again, I thought, oh my God, that was the one yeah. thing I didn't expect to hear. <laughs> I first it, thought that was the the happy end, you know, it was like, that was it. I didn't realize you slipped and it was like, geez, yeah, crazy. yeah. And, and that, that's, that's addiction, you know, that with, with the idea that I could go away for 25 hours of life, and I'm still using that that's the pull of the drug and, and, and that's when i realized you know that I'm, I'm in trouble i'm in trouble you know like not like before where it was like you know slap on the wrist or consequences or whatever this was like this was real this was really real you know so yeah that was it so that was i mean did what was it what's the thing that's really was the turning point from that salvation army rehab place what was the thing that really stopped you getting that addiction <laughs> back again <laughs> i went in i was horrible i was just angry i was mad about it you know i wanted to lash out at everybody else which is crazy because i put myself in there you know it was, all, it was all my fault anyway right but i i just was a, i was an addict i was just you know just just blaming everybody in the world and so i made a deal and i said if my life's not better in a year then I'm done. I'm, I'm going to go back out there, you know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow all the rules. I'm a horrible rule follower. You know, I have a problem with authority, obviously, all these things happening. And I said, I'm just going to do this thing. And I did it. And, you know, damn it, my life got better. It got a lot of better. Within a year, I had a, a job that was decent. I had an apartment, I had a car, you know, I had all these things happening that were, you know, not just monetarily I would peace of mind I had you know I I had a sense of self I was you know if I'm not a drug addict or a bank robber or, or working in the music industry who am I you know and I had an identity and I was a writer and I was like things and it was like this it, it was like it was like here here you want a life here it is and you know in my idea always since day one is like I need to be a rock star that's what I need to do that 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 would have been the perfect life and like that you know if I'd been a rock star I'd kill myself yes. but it, you know, it, it sort of handed me a life that was that was that was doable. You know, it's not as glamorous and as amazing as being a rock star, of course. Which, you know, who cares? But it was like it was like, you know, do you want to be creative? Do you want a, a you know a job where you help people? Do you want to be you know part of the system and not you know taking from it? You know, and I like to call it in the rhythm with the universe. I'm in rhythm with the universe now instead of being against the grain the whole time. And uh, you know, and and I this, this was this was the hardest thing I, I had to figure out. I had the feeling that I had to quit everything and, and sort of be this mainstream guy and, you know, you part my hair in the middle, and go, yes. you know, go get a regular job again, 7-Eleven or something like that. And I was like deadly afraid of that because that was like everything I was against, especially with punk rock. And I didn't have to do that. I don't have to do that. I can still be me. I can still have my values. I can still be a punk rocker. I can still be all these things, you know, but I'm just, I just, I just, you know, have a sense of, a sense of being part of a humanity. 
rather not, you know, and it's not like I said around love everybody, especially not in America. There's half of us are out of their minds, you know, but, yeah. but, you know, but, uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it just, it just became a way of dealing with things in a different way that was like, uh, you know, I mean, and, and part of it is like, you know, punk rock is very nihilist. We were, we were, it was, you know, wasn't going anywhere. We, we, we live, live fast, die young, all that stuff. And, you know, I obviously missed the die young part. So it was sort of, I had to do something and, you know, I had to find things that, 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 that gave me joy and, and, and I felt good about it. And, and those are all foreign languages to me. It was very yes. weird. You know, and and I did. I, I figured that out. You know, now is, am I am I amazingly happy? And 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 my life is amazing. Uh, not all the time, but it, it's uh, it's 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 close to who I was a million years ago when I was an artist. You know. So when did you do the diet? You know, the vegan and the health. When did you have the those kind of new habits? When did they sort of appear in your well, life? Well, that that's been a progression. You know, I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and all this like that. And uh, I was working at a. Uh, I also work in a drug and alcohol rehab. That's my day job. And I was working in a drug and alcohol rehab. And there was a dog running around. I was trying to catch the dog, and I could barely breathe. And I go, "What the hell? Stop smoking!" You know, a couple a year later, I, I'm worried about kind of my diet. I'm eating a lot of crap. I'm sort of I'm, I'm sort of like you know eating like a junkie still. I mean, yeah. like you know, McDonald's and garbage. You know, and I'm not feeling good about myself. I'm in a heavy depression. And I was like, you know, I'm gonna stop eating junk food. And then it was like progressed into pescatarian and you know all that kind of stuff. And then it became vegetarian. And it was that for 18 years. And then three years ago, I became a vegan. And uh, it's sort of the progression. I, I I meditate. I do yoga. I, mean, I do all this crap. <laughs> that was so not, so not punk rock because it's a progression. You know, it's a progression of action. And what it really comes down to is when I'm not a drug addict, I still actually care about myself. You know, yes. and 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 you know, and I'm 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 not getting younger. I'm 66 years old. You know, and 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 I I there's a, you know I'm not one of those people that, that can't wait for it to get over with because it's so horrible. I have a lot of stuff I want to do. I got some more books in me. I got things that are happening. You know, I, I'm 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 playing music again. I'm I'm doing all these kind of things. You know, uh, I'm excited for what what life has a hold. So I don't really want to keel off of a cardiac arrest. Uh, you know, tomorrow from you know <laughs> eating too much garbage and stuff like that. So it's just been one of those things. You you know, and Amazing. I got it, got it, got I used to jog, which was just bizarre. I used to run around the city and my knees sort of started giving out. And so I picked up the bicycle and I, I'm on now, I'm, now I'm on my bicycle everywhere, <laughs> you know, which were things, things back in the eighties, I would never be seen doing, you know, I mean, there's no way it was just there's uh, exercise or crazy, you know? So yes, well, I, I mean, you know, I've, I've started, you know, I got into all that kind of stuff. I, I'm more <laughs> veg I'm vegetarian than vegan, yeah. but the whole mm -hmm. exercise thing is just like, I think I started seeing people my age and I thinking, God, you look ancient. You look actually quite old. And the worst thing they would put on their social media picture, a picture of them when they were 18. I'm yeah, thinking, yeah. Yeah, but you're not 18, mate, are you? And that's not, not that, a makes good look. It, that makes it even worse because you go, God, you were really good looking, but now you just look like <laughs> a really tragic old man, you know, and it or woman. And it's a little bit like shit, that's yeah. not a good look, is it? It's not no. good. No. Know? And that's and so with that, because you said at the beginning, you know, about your 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 father, um, mm -hmm. how did your parents cope seeing your life through that 70s and 80s period? I, I, I think it was really rough. You know, they, they didn't get punk rock. You know, they, they didn't get it. Uh, it, they, you know, they probably figured it was kind of a phase or whatever that they, they didn't understand what happened to me. They kind of blamed play punk rock because I didn't let, let them know I was a drug addict. Uh, you know, not something you tell your mom and dad, at least not over here, you know. And so uh, there, there was a lot of problems there. Uh, but my dad sort of 
came over and he he came down he he would come down to shows he saw the kennedys he saw tsol he came to flipper which was in the book is pretty bad thing to happen uh you know so the, 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 my you know my dad got involved my mom never did uh, but then there was a progression of, you know, for a while. And I, when I, when I sort of lost touch with everybody, I didn't talk to people for three years when I really hit the skids. And then when I, uh, when, when, when I was in trouble, they, they all came to my aid and they're, they're the ones that pay for the lawyer. And, you know, I'm, I'm not getting inheritance. They got me a lawyer, you know, and, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that deal. Uh, not that there's inheritance anyway, but, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and they, and, and, you know, the last 20 years I had a, an amazing relationship with my dad, you know, we got a relationship back together. Uh, he died uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, but he's one that encouraged me to go, to go to, uh, to go to uh, uh, graduate school. He's the one that, that uh, he read my first book and helped edit it. You know, he was, uh, you know, and I think that answered a lot of questions. For him yes. it's, a, it's a book that sort of my decline in, <laughs> from humans. And, uh, uh, and, and there was, and, you know, I, I think he was really, really happy. Uh, I think I, I, you know, I sort of lost for 20 years there. And I was a heroin addict for 18 years. So it's kind of lost there. And, and, you know, I, I renewed a friendship, but yeah, I was also, you know, not, in, I have two sisters. I was not in their lives, you know, I was just sort of gone and I've trying to repair all that, you know, and, and fix that. So it, 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 uh, you know, I, I liked, you know, I like to think that, that everything's good now. And I really like to think that my dad was actually proud of me before he died. And, uh, you know, I, and, but, but to answer your question, they had a really hard time. They had a really yes. hard time with it, you know, not easy, not easy thing to see, see your kid become a degenerate. <laughs> and what happened to Annalisa? I, Annalisa, we, we, we were in touch forever. Uh, she actually lived, uh, in my, my mom has a building in San Francisco and she lived in the basement of the building, basement apartment for the years that she stayed there. Uh, we kind of had a falling out, but nothing a couple of years ago. And she lives in Santa Cruz. Uh, we're not in touch, but I, but I see her at, at shows and things like that when I'm in the Bay area, we're good. We're, we're very good. You know, we're, we're, uh, you know, she, you know, she got her own life together. She too is, is a, you know, rabid vegan, you know, all this stuff, you know, and exercise like a fiend. And she, like me, she teaches college. She went on to write a doctorate and she teaches, uh, uh, she helps kids go from high school to college. She does that kind of transition. You know, I teach college. Uh, my my other job is I teach uh, English and 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 creative writing in college. You know, so there, there's a certain uh, you know it's it, it's sort of bizarre that punk sort of evolved into you know working people. <laughs> yes, no, God, it's a, it's kind of almost a happy ending, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's like yeah, it is. Hollywood it is. ending. Yeah, it's yeah, beautiful. God, yeah. I'm, and I'm really happy for the bands that are out playing. You know, I mean, I, I you know, T.S. Wells back out. They they play tours all the time. Flipper does something weird. I don't know what they are. Uh, the subhumans come here all the time. And I, I always say I'm going to go down there and never do it because I don't really go to shows anymore. You know, it's like it just doesn't really doesn't appeal to me. And also to tell you the truth, I don't know what to do with myself at a show because I'm not working. So, it, it, you know, I worked at shows for 10 years. I, I worked worked in the industry. And I got on a show. And I'm sort of milling around where, 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 where I stand. What do I do? Yes. <laughs> you know, it feels kind of weird. And uh, and so I I, I just never, haven't seen the subhumans. I really should. I really should go see them one of these times like that. And, you know, I I wish the Kennedys would you know write some new music. Uh, yeah, that's what I kind of hope. But other other than that, I, I'm really happy to see there's a resurgence of interest in the band. There's a resurgence of interest enough that my book got out. You know, that people sort of want to know what happened there because we're, we're nostalgia now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think last year or two, there's been there was a book on the tech. You know, there's photographic books on the Texas is a 
is the reason that was a photographic book and there's one mm-hmm. another photographic book on boston and kevin yeah. cummins who did lots of stuff with you know the sex pistols and joy division photographic mm-hmm. books they all came out yeah. i think there is this thing a passing of time which i think is i've put down to about 25 to 35 years mm-hmm. it's suddenly like periods then become quite interesting other parts yeah. of the 80s and i think that's where uh, you know your book captures so much but i mm-hmm. think if you tried to have written that book or you couldn't have done but if that had come out mm-hmm. in the 90s or i don't know in yeah, the years, it probably wouldn't have yeah. been that interesting mm-hmm. but now it's like yeah. wow that yeah. really captures a whole scene in so much right. detail doesn't right. it and yeah, people are interested i mean that whole thing with cbgb's and max's kansas city and the mud yeah. club yeah i mean they've all come out and it's like oh yeah that's an interesting bit so um, yeah yeah it's I went down as I was. I did go see TS a couple of years ago, and I, I was in the you know when when it, you know I wasn't on stage. I was I don't have a backstage pass anymore. I went and saw them play, and uh, I was really amazed because the audience was a bunch of people like me, my age, and then the audience was like a bunch of kids, like you know eighteen year olds, like really young kids that were not around when that first album came out, singing along to their songs that they that they know from from albums that came out in the eighties. You know, and I was like really amazed. I was like, that that's really interesting. That that's really cool. And I find that much more refreshing than going to see the newer, bigger, you know, generic punk bands that are out there. Yeah. I think that that that's great, you know. So and TSL is a kind of band that actually is writing new music. So that that's interesting too. Yes. And just last question, if you could have if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting oh. out. I mean, um, yes, I know, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, <laughs> even if that 16-year-old self would have mm-hmm. just ignored you, what would you have just said to them? I would I would say, I would, I would really told them not to be afraid, just to go out and do what you want to do. And, and you know, and, and that sounds funny because I did it, went out and did what I do, but a lot of it, a lot of things kept me back with fear. Uh, I, I think, I, I you know, I, I was afraid to really go out there and put my band out there. Uh, I was afraid to get my art out there. I didn't know how to deal with people. You know, I, I, I just I had, I, there's a lot of fear. And one of the reasons I did a lot of drugs is because I had social anxiety with people and, you know, it, 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 it cut that out, you know? And, and the other thing is also, you know, I just, I just got to take things so seriously, man. You know, I, I just was, you know, it, 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 it's okay to, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to screw up. It's okay to, you know, you're not going to be perfect. And, and that fear and that perfectionism, whatever kept me from, you know, doing, a lot of things and and you know uh you know i when i was younger i would just get up and go and, and you know hitchhike across country and do things like that and as i got older i got more fearful like you know, i think we all do kind of we sort of get like you know what what, what someone's going to you know judge us for our outcome or what we're able to do and that, that that's that's really the answer and the other thing i tell them is don't do heroin <laughs> <laughs> you know yes. which, which you couldn't have told me anyway because everybody said you, you're gonna go to the prison or you're gonna die and i was like you know i od'd nine times and i uh, went to prison once you know so and i was like that's not gonna happen you know but i know but, you know it... yes well, I, was I, just, gonna, I was just gonna say lemmy was always so dead against heroin wasn't he yeah from motorhead he just said you know it'll just make you a dog you know right right adult. yeah but but he was tipped into meth so we... <laughs> yes he took a superior you know? idea of his drug taking didn't he, really? right yeah. right you know but uh, yeah i mean i mean you know it, it's 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 we we are our own limitations we are our own limitations and i i, I constantly push that now you know i you know, i got these ideas that 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 oh someone will judge me for this and at this point in my life i don't really care 
know, <laughs> just gonna do what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna put I put myself out there. Yeah, I I I I I'm playing music now. I'm not playing for other people, and and you know, I'm not proficient and also rusty because I'm playing a lot. And you know, and I make a mistake, and it's just like before I would be you know horrified that that happened. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I saw the Stones play a couple of years ago, like like eight, you know nine years ago, not a couple, yeah. but nine ten years ago, and they were playing this huge arena in Oakland Arena, you know, just giant, you know, mega pick you know things everywhere and I, and I went down and saw them and ron wood and keith richards like both played a, a, a off chord they were they made a mistake in jumping jack flash or something and they looked at each other and laughed <laughs> and i was like i was like that is cool that you know that that's like yeah i made a mistake you know i'm keith richards and i, I flubbed that chord yes. and i like i like that freedom of that man you know because i would go home and think about that for a week you know and they just like yeah this happens. This is what happens. This I think that happens. that that's important. It's really yes. Important. Well, I think that's right. You know, that's yes. Very wise. You've just got to give yourself a bit more. Yes, yeah, slack, <laughs> really, haven't you? And um, yeah, and not have those kind of voices. The critic in you just has to be right. silenced a bit, really, and just um no one no one really is paying that much attention most of the time are they really no they're self-absorbed they're thinking about themselves man that's the <laughs> problem you know you think they're judging you they don't even notice you're not even on the radar <laughs> no this is true actually this is true but this look thank you ever so much patrick for giving me the Absolutely. time for this. this has been amazing if you want i can always send you the link to this and you can always use it elsewhere oh i would love to this is this is awesome david this has been a, a real pleasure talking you know no this has been, been fantastic and thank you ever so much the book's been amazing and uh cool i'm really looking forward to reading more of it but look have a lovely day and um i'll keep in touch but okay. again thank you ever so much for your time i really appreciate this okay you too thank you for Take asking care. me cheers bye-bye bye and that dear listener just in case you didn't realize it's the end of the interview a massive thank you to patrick o'neill whose book anarchy at the Circle K on the road with the Den Dead Kennedys, T-S-O-O-L, Flipper, Subhumans and Heroin is available, as I said, um, from all good bookshops and also online. This is part of Punk Hostage Press. This has been the C86 Show, David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And these have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. True. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.